Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at Zatarans.com. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. To paraphrase the Greek philosopher Heraclitus, the only constant in life is change. But that doesn't mean it's easy. On this week's show, we meet some individuals who have made some major changes in their lives or businesses and are all the better for it. We begin over on St. Charles Avenue in New Orleans at the Avenue Pub. For nearly 20 years, it was the kind of place where patrons bought cheap beer and knocked back shots of Jägermeister. After Polly Watts inherited the family business in 2006, she transformed her dad's dive bar into one of America's great craft beer palaces. Then. Award-winning songwriter and performer Michael O'Hara joins us with an uplifting personal story of his rock and roll journey and why, after all these years, the chic is back. And sometimes, change happens to us. Author Molly Birnbaum recalls the personal nightmare she experienced when an accident robbed her of the sense of smell potentially train-wrecking her dreams of a culinary career. We're changing course on this week's Louisiana Eats. At first glance, the Avenue Pub looks a bit like the dive bar it once was. If you take a quick look at the menu, however, you'll realize it's anything but. After inheriting the bar from her father in 2006, Polly Watts reshaped the Avenue Pub into one of the greatest craft beer destinations in the South. When I stopped by on a weekday afternoon, Polly and I ducked upstairs to get away from the large crowd of thirsty patrons to talk about this transformation. I'd like you to take us back to 2006. How long had your dad operated the Avenue Pub? Oh, you're going to require higher math here. Uh, about 19 or 20 years at that point. So we're 27 years old this year. And um, I helped him open it when I was a senior at Tulane. But I stepped out of the business and helped him peripherally with some of his you know, licensing stuff that I could do out of town. For all those years, I had a career with Bell South, and then I stayed home with my kids after they were born, so I did the stay-at-home mom thing. Uh, the year before Katrina, he started getting very ill. I was down here a lot helping him then, and then he passed away um, almost a year to the date after Katrina. So that's when I had to move down and fully take over. I thought I knew what I needed to know, but I learned a lot in a very short time. <laughs> It's so interesting to me that you went from 
this corporate atmosphere to owning a 24-hour-a-day bar. How, would, how did that huge life transformation feel for you? How did that go? Well, it was bizarre. And I got to tell you, if we weren't the bar we were today, I would not still own it. Because walking in in the morning and hearing that your toilet had broken because, you know, there was a prostitute in there. <laughs> or, or, you know, oh gosh, we went through, you know, seven bottles of Jägermeister last night and somebody threw up on the floor. Those are the kinds of things I was dealing with. And, you know, I'm not squeamish. I own a bar, right? But that's not an intellectual challenge. That, that's not what I want to be doing with my life. So had I not made that transition into something else and done it and been successful at it and been able to pay myself, pay my employees, we have health insurance here for our employees. It's very unusual in the industry. Um, if I had not been able to achieve all those things, I don't think I'd still own it because I, I wasn't interested in running that kind of bar. Tell us how you began to experiment with craft beer. Was there a particular event that brought about this motivation? Yes. So NOLA Brewing came into existence in March of 2009. And uh, we had redone our system about six months before that. So we had, at that time, the most up-to-date, best system, cleanest lines in the city. NOLA came in, and I thought it was going to be an expensive local beer. I mean, we were used to Abita, and we could sell Abita for 2 dollars or $3 a pint at the time. And the distributor's rep was telling me that NOLA was going to sell for $5 a pint. And I just didn't think there was any way that anybody was going to pay $5 for a pint of beer. So we saved lines for them. And it turns out to be this long sort of legendary thing because first they were going to come out in December. And the, the troubles that, the city, that they went through with the city are, were huge. It took them four months actually to get their doors open and brew the first batch. And we saved two lines for them the whole time. We weren't a beer bar then. It was no big deal. And Kirk Coco, who I never met, um, came in during Mardi Gras and started giving one of the bartenders a little bit of a tough time about why we didn't have NOLA. Well, my whole staff knew we were waiting on it. So Vicki turns around, not knowing who Kirk is, and says, well, if they would ever send it to us, it would be on tap. <laughs> so, so Kirk sort of, you know, goes out with his tail between his legs, because he knows he can't. They, they're yeah. not delivering beer yet. But the day that it released, they called me and said, you've held lines. They want you to be the first bar to have it on tap. How much do you want? I said, oh, I'll take one keg of the brown and one keg of the blunt. And it was gone in less than two hours. I'd never seen anything like that. I mean, it was completely, so I figured it's a fluke, right? Once more people get it on tap, that's not going to happen. So we order two more kegs for the next day. Same thing happens. Literally, this happens for four or five days. Finally, Kirk comes in with his wife and the rest of his crew, and I get to know them. And he says, who are you, and why does my beer taste better here than it tastes at my brewery? And I kind of tell him the story, and he said, if you build it, they're going to come. I knew nothing about craft beer at the time. I just knew there was a great business opportunity that wasn't being met. So between Kirk and Dylan over at NOLA and Dan Stein over at Stein's Deli, they started introducing me to different beer styles. And I found that I actually really loved beer. I just didn't like crappy beer. <laughs> so in 2011, you went to one of the great sources, Belgium. Yes. And how did your view and taste for beer change after that trip? 
Well, I've always loved Belgian beer. I mean, ever I say always, since I started discovering beer, I had a, a strong leaning towards Belgian beer. And I think my taste mirrors a lot of New Orleanians. We grew up with wine. And that flavor profile is so much more similar to wine. Belgian beer is so much more similar to wine. So I think that's part of why we evolved and did as well as we did, because New Orleans palates were already attuned to that taste profile. Do you view yourself as a beer educator? Yeah, I think that's part of what we do well here. We believe strongly you should drink what you like. If you like a certain beer, we're not going to tell you you shouldn't drink it or that it's bad or anything like that. But if you like this Belgian wit, why not try this Belgian wit that has chicory root in it? Because that gives it, you know, a little bit of a touch. Or if you like this IPA that's made with chunk hops, then, you know, see what you think about the Centennial hops or the Citra hops or the Simcoe hops. And I think that's part of the fun because craft beer, it's not about getting drunk. The educational experience is what appeals to most customers that come in here. Craft beer maven Polly Watts of New Orleans Avenue Pub. Coming up next, we speak with New Orleans music legend, the chic himself, Michael O'Hara. Louisiana Eats returns after a break. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand. Beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. And from Ralph Brennan's Redfish Grill, home of the award-winning barbecue oyster poor boy and nine varieties of fresh gulf fish caught and served daily. Lunch, dinner, and private events at 115 Bourbon Street in the French Quarter. As a boy in St. Louis, Michael O'Hara first found his calling at the age of six, composing a Christmas carol for his family on their new Christmas piano. He honed this musical gift in the churches of his hometown, playing and singing gospel music. This foundation later led him to start his own band, The Sheiks, and find some success both in the club scene in New Orleans and opening for bands such as The Rolling Stones, The Police, and Shaka Khan. Ultimately, like many rockers of the time, sex, drugs, and rock and roll took their toll. After hitting rock bottom, Michael began the slow climb back to redemption. This journey eventually brought Michael back to New Orleans, where he is again performing as the Sheik. We talked with him about how he's come full circle. 
Hello, everybody. This is Michael J. O'Hara, known around this city as The Sheik. Also, I'm getting to be known as The Torch Singer. I'm a four-time Grammy nominee, two-time American Music Award nominee, and I love Bobby. I love you. I love you. I love you. And thank you for having me. Well, I love you, too, Michael. I'm so tickled to have you here. And the long list of your accolades goes on and on. The four Grammy nominations, of course, the two American Music Award nominations, the two BMI Awards, yeah. and you're a songwriter. And as that, you've had two number one hits for Anita Baker. And just because, and it's been you all the time. I mean, that's Patti just... LaBelle, you know, you name it back then. I had, you know, Jody Watley, CeCe Peniston, Even Judy Hawkins, Collins. Judy Collins. <laughs> and I did three nights at Carnegie Hall with her where she featured me. And then we did, I did a whole album with her on Columbia. Well, it seems like you have had three or four lives already. I don't count those because they say you only have nine. I want 20. <laughs> well, I would like to, I, I, I know that we're going way back to ancient history, but there's so many things that I'm curious about. What was craft services like <laughs> when you're traveling with the Rolling Stones? You know, those were fringe times for us because they were always catered by some of the most amazing chefs. And so that's when we ate well. <laughs> but on the road, you know, Mickey D's was a stable, you know, Jack in the Box. But I come from, of course, a, a black family of cookers or, you know, just cooking the macaroni and cheese and stuff like that. But um, I was even skinnier than I am now then, of course. But um, I could eat all of that wonderful food, you know, crab and shrimp meat dressing, you know, stuffing, uh, macaroni and cheese, like four layers thick, you know, all this stuff. I come from that cornbread, you know, ham hocks, you know, you name it. You know, I love I still love all that food. And being back here in New Orleans, I've had to re-educate myself <laughs> how to eat and stay thin, you know, and healthy. Did you get clean and sober and then later address your love affair with food? Well, what what I understand what you're asking now, um, back in those days when I was doing, I was 16 shots a night of, of Jack Daniels Black with only water chaser. I think now it kind of, God, used that to filter <laughs> my kidneys because I didn't like it with Coke or anything like that. And, you know, cocaine, pot, you know, you name it. Um, I, I didn't like needles. So I, I couldn't do heroin or anything like that. But anyway, I wasn't eating very much. Plus, we were performing, and we were on the run, as most musicians in that understand that. And you know that. You're yeah. on the run. So I wasn't eating much. But I guess, and I didn't gain any weight all those years. What was the deciding point for you when you decided you had to clean up your act? Well, um, I didn't want to die. <laughs> Seriously. I, I knew that I was coming very close to the edge, and I had that aha moment that we all talk about. And for me, it was the simp simple fact that I knew that I couldn't go any further, that I was going to die and become a statistic. And I, I, I seriously, one, one day I was having a party, like I would clean up for, you know, the big records, you know, 
I, they pay me a ton of money. I do a, a record for a big artist, da, 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 you know, like two months or something or a month, whatever it took. And then I would pay all my bills for three months and party. I'd give the party of the century with, you know, Everybody came and they knew it was drug, sex, and rock and roll. And that, where were you living then? I was where living was this in New York. I was living in New York then. Ah. And uh, one one time during this downtime party that I was giving, and the place was just filled with cocaine and, and all you know everything imaginable you can imagine was going on in there. And I was the ringleader. I was better than all of them. No, <laughs> but anyway, I went to the restroom and I looked in the mirror. And I saw that demon just behind my eyes. For the first time, I really, I really looked at myself. Excuse me. And I said this one sentence to no one in particular. I said, my parents didn't raise me to be like this. God help me. I can't go on anymore. And I felt the power of God strike me from the crown of my head to the soles of my feet. I jumped in the shower. And I started scrubbing and scrubbing for an hour or more. I came out, I put on fresh pajamas and everything, and I went through all my room. I had a palace of sin. And I said, told everyone, take all the drugs, all of the alcohol, everything, the party's over. Well, they thought, because that's generally what happened, I must have gotten a call from a record label to do another record project. But that was the end for me. I I gave it all up because I just didn't want anything to control me. But my metabolism was all off kilter. So, of course, I'm home with all the saints of God, with my father's church people cooking and bringing over food. And I'm like, I haven't eaten this kind of stuff in a long time. I'm hungry. Well, 25 <laughs> pounds. Yeah, I was hungry. And 25 pounds, I thought, ah, you can get rid of that. 30, you know, and it just started coming on. And before I knew it, I had 230 pounds on me. Oh, my goodness. Over, you know, a 30 some odd year point. And then I took my mother to her normal uh, doctor's visit. I'm in the office. Mama's giving blood in another room. And our doctor said, Michael, let me let me take your blood pressure. And I said, well, I'm not due for a visit for two months. She said, well, you're here. Let me take it. She took. She didn't say a word. I'm on my phone texting. She's on her five minutes or so later. She said, can you go in the hospital? You're about to stroke out and die. My blood pressure was 287 over 187. Wow. And I was started crying. I said, what do you mean? That's why they call it the silent killer. And then she told me, you're obese, you're, you're pressured, you're going to stroke out and die. Then and there, I promised God and her and myself that I would change my life if she would release me on my own recognizance. And she did. She trusted me. And I went home. I gave all the bad food to uh, the neighbors with all the children and stuff. They were so thankful. My mother was going to visit my sister in Philadelphia for three months. I put her on the plane the next day. I joined the gym. I started working out in the morning and at night. And um, three months later, when I picked my mother up at the airport, I lost like 70 pounds. 70 pounds? 70 pounds. How many pounds were you overweight in total? I was 230 pounds. Was how much you weighed, period? That's how, no, no, no. I mean, past. You were 230 uh, pounds uh, overweight. Over because 
you know, back in the day, I was a hundred and maybe fifteen or twenty, twenty-five. Yeah. You know, you remember? Yeah. And you so you were a little skinny thing. A little skinny thing. Now you tack on two hundred and thirty pounds. Even on Facebook, my Facebook fans, I periodically will post what I call excuse me people. But for me, my fat pictures, so the people know I'm not lying. Yeah. And believe me, I love the comments when they go. Dang, you were that, you know, you were because nobody was used to seeing me like that. You've recently released a really fabulous new CD that I just love. Tell me what's new and different about this CD. Well, having been blessed to write and produce songs for, you know, all these stars, Patty LaBelle, blah, 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 on and on, I miss the curve for myself. Okay, as an artist. And and believe it or not, besides the one Chic album going public back in the day in the 70s and stuff that we released in, in my former band, um, I had never done a solo project and I had never been signed to a record deal. Well, thank God I approached John G. Otan of Rabadash Records, very well, highly rated, you know, independent label here for years. And he's also an amazing artist himself, pianist and everything. I called him one day at his office and I said, he went, hello. I said, I need to speak with uh, John O'Tan. I'm reading it because I went online. He said, this is John. I said, this is Michael O'Hara, the Sheik. Well, he went, Holy, <laughs> and he must have been in some kind of rarity. He says, Guys, I got the sheep, Michael O'Hara, on the phone. I can't believe it. You know, and I'm like, Calm down, don't wear your pants. You know, I said, I'm looking for a record deal. Hey, Michael O'Hara's looking for a record deal. I said, You know, on, I couldn't hardly talk to him, this, he was, which was so kind. I said, I want a meeting. Said, Michael O'Hara, the sheep is coming for a meeting. Well, I had a meeting, I took a meeting with him, and um, I had already started. Uh, recording the record, but guess what I did, Poppy? What? I only let him hear a minute of every song. Uh-huh. And he's like, where's the rest of the song? And I go, then I knew I had him. Uh-huh. <laughs> I said, you got to sign me for that. <laughs> <laughs> so it was my first solo project. So here I am at the tender age of 63, getting signed to my first record deal and dropping my first personal CD. So... Isn't life great? (laughs) Isn't life great? Well, I absolutely love your music, and Mm -hmm. I love your CD. And it was such an incredible treat to get to share you with my Louisiana Eats listening audience. Well, I love your Louisiana Eats place. I love to eat in Louisiana. (laughs) But I have something very special for you and your listeners. But this is from my heart. Okay. So time after time, you hear me say that I'm so lucky to be loving you. I love you. I love you, too. (laughs) Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you. And to all your listeners, God bless. That was singer, songwriter, and chic, Michael O'Hara. In the front of my mind, I'm scheming. Gotta make things right in time. Stop dreaming. Cause it can't be your cash cow. Cause your mouth is right in checks. Your ass can't cash now. 
If you've ever eaten a meal with a stuffy nose, you may discover that your food is bland and less appetizing. Doctors call this anosmia, the loss of smell, and it's a condition suffered by millions of Americans. Often caused by a nasal condition or brain injury, the effects of anosmia can be devastating, especially for someone with culinary aspirations. In the summer of 2005, Molly Birnbaum was a 22-year-old Brown University graduate about to enroll in the Culinary Institute of America to train as a chef. All that changed when she suffered a dreadful accident that resulted not only in broken bones, but the loss of her sense of smell. Molly writes about her experience in her memoir, Season to Taste, and join me in the Louisiana Eats studio to talk about it. She began by describing what happened that day that forever changed her life. Well, I was working in Boston at the time, and I went for a jog one morning, as I often did. I was living at my mother's house at the time in Brookline, and I went for a run. I was jogging up the street and came to an intersection, a four-lane highway, and it had a light, and I you know, thought it was the time to go, so I just went straight across, um, and I was hit by a car. Mm. So when did you discover that you'd lost your sense of smell? It took weeks before I discovered that I couldn't smell. And that was in part because I was injured in so many other places. I, you know, I tore the ligaments in my knee. I broke my pelvis. I fractured my skull. I was, I was not with it for a while. Mm. But a couple of weeks later, I was recovering in my parents' house. And my stepmother, Cindy, decided to bake an apple crisp. I was having a hard time eating. You know, I, I wasn't feeling well at all. And she thought this would help. It was one of my favorite desserts, you know, the apples and the cinnamon. It was fall time. It was, you know, reminiscent of my childhood. Uh, but when she took the crisp out of the oven, I was in a room with family and a friend or two, and everyone was ooing and aahing over the scent of this dessert. And I breathed in, and I, I couldn't smell anything. And I thought, you know, this is strange. Uh, maybe someone's in my way, you know, maybe something was blocking the scent from reaching me. Um, but when she took it out and brought it to the room and held it under my nose and I, I breathed in, I could feel the heat, the thick heat of the steam in my nose, but there was nothing else. And that's when I realized that something was truly wrong. And what happened as a result of the accident was your olfactory nerves had actually detached, correct? Well, what happened, I later learned, is that when I, I fractured my skull, and it was the back of my skull against the windshield of this car, so there was a, a big impact, a thump, and my brain bounced within my skull. And when it bounced at the front it severed the olfactory neurons, which snake from the nose to the brain kind of sheared them off with it, the impact, kind of like a lawnmower over grass. And so in one split second, they were just completely detached, no longer able to transmit these signals. Explain to us the complexity of how the sense of smell works in humans. Well, it is complex, and it is one of the least studied senses, so there are still many questions left. Um, but basically, when we inhale over an apple crisp, there are hundreds of scent molecules that enter in our noses, travel up to the top, and are received by the olfactory receptors, which then transmit signals from our nose to our brain. 
And these signals are, are, are patterns. You know, all of the different molecules sent very different signals over many, many different neurons. And so it's almost like reading sheet music. The brain interprets these signals to be cinnamon or apples or sugar. And it's not entirely clear how we interpret these signals, but nonetheless, we do get that scent. Tell me how the loss of the sense of smell affected your life. It affected it greatly. When I lost my sense of smell. I had been training to be a chef. I was in love with food. I was passionate about cooking. I wanted nothing more than to you know, spend my life in the kitchen and feed people. Um, but without a sense of smell, I lost flavor, basically. I, I had known that smell and taste were connected, but I didn't realize by how much, how powerful smell was when it came to eating and tasting. So without a sense of smell, I had the salty, sweet, bitter, sour, and umami of my taste buds on my tongue. You know, I could taste salt. I could taste sugar. Um, I had temperature and texture, but very little else. I didn't have spice or herb, all of the nuance that makes food recognizable or good. So without a sense of smell, food became mute and bland. Everything tasted the same. It was, uh, it was very difficult. It was depressing, wasn't it? It was incredibly depressing. You know, walking into a kitchen where someone is cooking, where it would once be butter and garlic, uh, was just flat and plain. I couldn't tell when I was hungry. I couldn't tell when food was in the kitchen, when I ate it. You know, it was just, it was like my world had gone from color to black and white. I was particularly fascinated by one of the things that it seemed you enjoyed eating at that time that involved a familiar Louisiana ingredient and some bread. Oh, Tabasco sauce. I <laughs> ate it on everything because I could feel the spiciness. I mean, that's a tingling of the nerves in the mouth. I could feel that. And I it made food feel more alive. So I, I ate Tabasco on everything. Um, but to help my sense of smell come back, I had begun talking to scientists and perfumers, you know, trying to get answers. What was going on in my nose? Why did this mean so much? Why weren't there answers of how I could recover? And many of them told me that though it, it was not foolproof, smelling things would help me to retrain my sense of smell, to help get it back. And that could be just taking spices out of my cupboard and smelling them one after another. That's one of the most fascinating things about the sense of smell is that our olfactory neurons have the ability to regenerate and regrow. And even in a healthy nose, your olfactory neurons are constantly regenerating. You have new olfactory neurons. I've heard that in rats, it's 30 days. I'm not sure what it is in humans, but it's, it's relatively frequent. So Molly, what did you do to go about regaining your sense of smell? I was lucky. My sense of smell began to return on its own very slowly over the course of years. And the first scent returned, and it was, it was one scent at a time. Uh, and I was chopping fresh rosemary. I was helping my mother to cook dinner. And I was chopping it for a marinade. And there was nothing, there was nothing I was chopping. And then all of a sudden, the smell just hit me. And it was, you know, glorious. It, dark green and earthy and herby and r reminded me of a moment in my childhood, of course, when I rode a horse for the first time out west. Um, but after I got over the, the glee of just being able to smell anything again, I began to realize that I, I couldn't recognize smells that I think 
before the accident would have been so familiar. The words to label them would have come, you know, right to my mouth. But that was that was gone. And so I tried to train my nose so that I could recognize smells again in the way that I did before, kind of relearning how to smell, relearning all of the scents that were present in my daily life. It was all good scents in the beginning, rosemary and chocolate, cucumbers, which I hadn't even realized had a scent before it came back. I even went so far as to go to perfume school and smell raw perfume materials over and over, and that really did help. Do you still suffer any residual effects? Well, I think that I can smell today better than I could before, and I'm not sure that's because I can smell more or more intensely, but simply that I pay so much attention to scent now and smelling things and labeling things and just being aware. So I think that the only residual effects right now are are good ones. A season to taste is a very personal and intimate look at your life. Why did you write the book? I wrote this book because when I lost my sense of smell, I felt so lost, frankly, and I didn't have answers. No one could tell me why this happened, what would happen to me in the future, and how I could make sense of my place within this disability. And through the course of these questions, I began to meet hundreds of people who had likewise lost their sense of smell and felt its effects as much as I did. So I knew that I wasn't alone, and I knew that other people also didn't have answers. So as I went through this process talking to scientists and perfumers and chefs and flavorists, you know, I I realized that there was a story to tell here that was much larger than my own in America, 1% to 2% of the population cannot smell, which translates to millions of people. And you can lose your sense of smell through a head injury like mine or simply a cold. A virus can wipe it out. And as we age, we all lose a little bit of our ability to smell. So I think it's much more common than most people realize. Well, I'm thrilled that you were able to come and talk with us today. And I want to thank you so much. And please come back to New Orleans and have another sniff and taste of us soon. Oh, I will. Thank you. (laughs) Molly Birnbaum, author of A Season to Taste. Now that we've done so much olfactory exploration, what about the nose of wine? Stay tuned, and we'll investigate that concept when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker. And you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Have you caught our Louisiana Eats Quick Bites podcast yet? Visit poppytooker.com to listen. While there, you can also subscribe to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so you won't miss a delicious bite. 
You can also easily webcast any of the Quick Bites or Louisiana Eats episodes right from your computer on poppytooker.com. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. week's culinary quiz question brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Culinary Institute. So what about the nose of wine? When you breathe in deeply from a wine glass, you're literally nose to nose with the wine. Your nose identifies aromas through orthonasal olfaction. The wine's nose offers the grape derivatives of fruit, herbs, and flowers, while secondary aromas come from how the wine was made. And then the tertiary aromas come from aging, either in oak casks or in the bottle. Those aromas are savory, like roasted nuts, vanilla, and sometimes baking spices. When it comes to how your wine tastes, it's really the nose that knows. What about the mouth's role at this party? That wine easily slips past the lips, delivering a penelope of flavors. But have you ever thought about how something feels in your mouth? When it comes to mouthfeel, nothing quite stacks up to roasted okra. If you've never eaten roasted okra, even if you believe you hate okra, you've got to give this a try. It's super easy, just takes 15 minutes, and as you begin to chew on a roasted okra spear, instead of the slime that's often a big okra turnoff, the high roasting temperature turns that notoriously mucilaginous substance into something that feels almost satiny in your mouth. It tastes delicious, and it's just such a pleasure to eat. You'll find the recipe at poppytooker.com. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. February 29, 1918, a French wine salesman named Arnaud Kazanov opened Arnaud's restaurant in New Orleans' French Quarter. The extravagant, eccentric Count, as he dubbed himself, spent decades expanding the restaurant in size and scope, creating an institution specializing in French Creole cuisine. One hundred years later, the legendary restaurant remains an institution with endless stories to tell. The Louisiana Eats team recently visited Arno's to speak with the family, ushering the restaurant into its second century. My name is Katie Kasparian. I'm Jane Kasparian. And I'm Archie Kasparian. The Kasparians are the second family to run Arno's, which they took over in 1978. Until then, Count Arno Kazanov's theatrical daughter, Jermaine Wells, operated the restaurant as her stage. 
to Germaine, the restaurant business was, to quote her, a play in two acts, lunch and dinner. For decades, Germaine resisted offers to hand over the keys to her father's treasured restaurant. That all changed when she met the late Archie Kasparian Sr. and his wife Jane in the late 70s. I asked Jane to take us back to those days. Well, Archie was in the hotel business, and uh, he ran the Royal Orleans and then the Royal Sinesta. And he loved food and beverage. That's what he was wonderful at. And he always said he wanted to be a restaurateur. He'd been offered the Royal Sinesta, the corporate office was in um, Boston, and he didn't want to go back there. He loved New Orleans. He did not want to leave New Orleans. All of a sudden, Arno's was up for grabs, and he worked very hard to get it because everybody in town wanted it. But for some reason, Jermaine Wells took a liking to him. Jermaine saw a little bit of her father in Archie. He shared the Count's European flair with his love for good cigars, handsome clothes, and fine dining. Archie and Germaine spent many lunches together talking business at the Royal Sinesta, where Archie was the general manager. She called him Sonny. She couldn't, re- I guess, couldn't remember his name, but anyway. And her lawyer, George Camber, was with her. And it was just, Archie could drink, but my goodness, he would tell all the waiters, put water in mine or something, and then she got suspicious. And she grabbed his drink one day and saw it was water, and that was it. He had to go back to vodka. She was having, I guess, heart failure, and so she had vodka and cranberry juice because she thought the cranberry juice would help her heart, but it didn't stop her drinking. She could really drink. Seemed logical. Yeah. Yeah. I like her style. So anyway, it was months and months and months and months, and finally she said his initials were the same as her father, Arno Kazanath. He smoked cigars and he liked to tell stories, and he liked brandy. Everything was just like her dad. So that's how we got in this deal. And, and of course, did it on a wing and a prayer, because we had no money. And by 1978, Arno's was in desperate need of a makeover. Since Count Arno's death three decades earlier, the quality of the dining experience was on the decline. Even the buildings that housed the restaurant were in great disrepair. The place needed fixing from head foot. She had never touched the place. You know, as she got older, she would close off a room. Mm-hmm. That was it, the solution the to solution fixing. The solution is if it's leaking, just close the room. Or if there are pigeons flying around, just close the room and, you know, forget about it. So um, it was quite an undertaking. Despite a lack of funds and their parents' reservations, both Archie and Jane were confident that they could turn the place around. They thought we were crazy when they first came in here, but we could see what a wonderful old place it was and how marvelous it could be. We did the downstairs in the kitchen, and we were able to open March 1st of 79, which was really unbelievable. And then after she died, we were able to purchase the restaurant. With the death of Germaine Wells in 1983, One chapter of Arno's history ended, and a new one began, with the Kasparians leading the charge. Arno's current success can be attributed to the Kasparians' ability to present fresh ideas while maintaining a link to the past. 
even the menu maintains a common thread with the count. But when Archie and Jane took over the menu, there were some items on there that they had no problems getting rid of, including potatoes cooked in more ways than I can easily name. Well, that and the Hawaiian ham and pineapple, and there was spaghetti and meatballs. You could have two or one. Things that made no sense in a French restaurant. A few of the items we had recipes for, but the recipes made no sense whatsoever. So that took a lot of doing. We had to research if they were classic dishes, what should they have tasted like. We used to have to buy the ramelade sauce from Germaine, and she had a guy who worked for her. It's like the original Al Copeland. <laughs> yeah. Because this... he wouldn't give up the recipe. Right. <laughs> I mean, we were kind of upset because he made it in this big old nasty wooden vat, you know, and it didn't look like they ever washed it. and. We were forced to buy it. Anyway, when she died, we got the recipe. Well, of course, it didn't taste the way it should. The other thing was the Meniere sauce. And at that time, Warren LaRuth was doing um, consulting work because he was a food chemist. And he worked with us, and we perfected the ramelade sauce and the Meniere sauce. He remembered them, you know, because he lived here all his life. But we worked and worked and worked. and went through a lot of recipes until we got it right. Because it had to be, the sauce had to be just the right amount of spice so you get the hit on the third shrimp, <laughs> the third bite. And um, any new recipe, we type up, keep refining it. And then once it's okay, it goes in a book, it's stamped. And so the cooks all know you have to use this recipe. When they redid it, my mother and father redid the kitchen, they brought in, you know, a national uh, kitchen design firm to come down here that was a contact from the, from the hotel days. Archie, coming from the hotel business, was sick and tired of going to hotels where the kitchen was the last thought mm. when they were building these hotels, and so there w it wasn't big enough to handle the volume. He ran this like a hotel, and he was the first restaurateur to have department heads. We had the housekeeping and the storekeeper and the banquet and the chef and the sales department. No restaurant in town had a sales department. Now they all do. So I think he really um, was pretty special in that, in that respect, that he really brought a lot to the restaurant business. He was just an incredible visionary. He yeah. really was. Yeah. And I know you all miss him tremendously. Oh, How long has he been gone? Nine, Nine years. years. Oh, my goodness. He was so brilliant, um, so talented. I mean, you would love him. Could tell a good story. You know, he's a party boy, but really smart and, um, and hardworking, very hardworking. And attention to detail. You know, he really, would, like I said, would drive you crazy, but he, it had to be done a certain way, and he was right. Have yeah. you all ever gotten to a point in the last nine years when you're trying to make a decision? Do you say, well, what, what would Archie do? I'd say every day, probably, mm -hmm. yeah. I um, think we live just wanting to make him proud of what we do. And, you know. Both we, of them. Yeah, absolutely. My mother and my father. But, you know, there are big shoes to fill for both of them. And I'm not sure that we're worthy to fill them just yet. You but, are. But we certainly, you know. Every decision that we make is, we, we take that into account of what would he do? Would he 
would he be proud of this? And you know, what I'm most proud of about what he, what they both have done is just that I'm not sure that Arno's, but for them, would be what it is right now. Whether it would look this way, whether people would continue to come to Arno's, whether another operator would have tried to keep the continuity through the decades and yet still build on the quality, whether it would be completely different, you know. But you know, it was a one, it's a wonderful, grand old place and we wanted it to be like it, if it wasn't, like it should have been in 1918 and um, really it is a very special place and I've been very lucky to have been a part of it. That was Jane, Katie, and Archie Kasparian, proprietors of Arno's Restaurant. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions and hear all about upcoming special events by visiting poppytooker.com. You can find videos, recipes, and even order cookbooks there. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarain's, and from Camellia Brand Beans. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau and from the Bourbon House. From oysters to redfish, serving fresh Gulf seafood and American whiskey on Bourbon Street. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and special projects manager Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. Mm -hmm.